Digital tools mean that anyone can market their business effectively, whereas only a few years ago such methods were restricted to those companies with large budgets. But with so much available, it can be a daunting task coming up with a marketing strategy and then putting client communications in place. I originally connected with today's guest on Google+, a somewhat underrated social media platform, and I was very interested in his approach, so it's great to welcome him to the Empath podcast. John Bloomfield is a financial advisor who's put together a great strategy for his own business and now helps other advisors with theirs. Hear how he created a communication strategy, including his website, email lists, newsletter and client surveys. Listen to the challenges and the successes he's experienced on his financial services marketing journey. That's right here in episode 19 of the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here, and you're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. So let's get started. I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today, and he is John Bloomfield. John runs Bloomfield Financial Limited, a company within the Sesame Network. John also runs a web design agency called Demo, which started as a pet project and has developed into a company that supports other financial advisors and their online offerings. He is best known in the advisor community, however, as Demo, for having set up Sesame Forum, an online community for advisors within that network to chat anonymously about concerns and support each other with their business. So, John, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Thank you, Roger. How are you today? Not too bad, better than the weather. Before we get into our main discussion, what I'd like to do at the beginning is just to find out a little bit more about you, John. So tell everybody a little bit about your background so that we can get to know you and find out a little bit about what makes you tick. I left university in 2001. Um, I did a history degree, which uh, surprisingly has been extremely useful in this profession. When I left uni, I was working for a retail company who gave me a promotion, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but it was awful. So I uh, went to work for a little building society to take some time out because I had a friend working for a bank and it seemed like an easy job. So I went there for a little while and I've been in financial services ever since, moving to a bank and then after leaving the bank because I didn't like the selling aspect, I uh, became the independent community. And when you left university, not only were you thinking about becoming a financial advisor, you also did a little bit of web design on the side, didn't you? Yeah, that was just a way to uh, pay a few bills going through university. Basically, I was setting up the odd page for takeaways and things like that. It was never anything particularly advanced, but I've always pursued it as a hobby since then. And uh, now I build a lot of uh, websites for financial advice. And I think we'll probably get into a little bit more of a discussion about what you do provide for financial advisors from that demo service and certainly marketing of advisors in the UK is something that interests me because I don't think enough advisors do much marketing. They tend to depend upon referrals or depend upon word of mouth whereas I think that in the digital world now we've 
got so much more opportunity for advisors to really promote themselves, particularly in the local community. And let's just have a chat about what you do as a financial advisor. Do you cover, the, are you a holistic planner? Do you cover the entire market or are you focusing on specific niches? I would say that I've always tried to remain a general practitioner, but that doesn't mean I don't pursue the specialist qualification. Mm-hmm. So there are areas where I may have picked up the qualification, I might choose to do the business in it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just for interest and I'll actually still refer the client on to a specialist, but I haven't chosen to focus on any sort of niche. I would say if there is any sort of niche that I've developed, it's actually in the personality type of the clients I seem to attract rather than anything specific about. So who are you attracting to your business, John? Nearly all my clients are a bit like me. They're, uh, the vast majority that come into the business are of a similar age to me. They tend to be male. Or the male of a, of a couple tends to be the first person that comes to me. And um, there's a, a very high concentration of uh, computer programmers and technology-related people. And what sort of questions are they asking you when they come to see you? Is it mortgage advice or are they looking to invest? It's it's a bit of, a, of everything, to be honest. I always, although I find mortgages to be a complete pain, and I think most financial advisors would probably agree with that, I would never drop it because for most of my clients who come in are sort of early 20s to early 30s, um, the mortgage is a very important part of their finances. And to say, well, we don't deal with that, it's just not really acceptable when you're a general practitioner and it brings a lot of clients in who become much bigger clients over time it's more important i had a pete chadbourne on the podcast not so long ago and he's a great advocate of trying to fulfill the need of pretty much anybody who comes through the door even if it's not a major focus for him he'll always find a way of fulfilling their need because obviously this day and age you can't really you don't really want to turn a customer away certainly if you're a small small one-man band or a small company yeah i mean i agree with that to some degree but it depends on what you do to fulfill the need of everybody i think for example i will always have somebody to refer somebody to and will always find somebody else they can get the service they need from without actually doing it myself um, if it's something i I don't want to do but I do know quite a few advisors who turn nothing away and don't struggle because there's only so many hours in the day when I first started in the industry I didn't like to turn anything away because I had no clients um, so you would get bogged down in all sorts of things things that an advisor couldn't possibly make any money out of you know like um, helping people sort out their debts that they're getting into trouble with and things like that where over time I've realised that actually you're much better off in those scenarios just making a referral to Citizen Advice Bureau yeah. and just being there if the client wants to bounce something off you so moving on to the, the, the discussion that we were going to focus on today, John, uh, I think we were going to talk specifically about marketing and specifically about how you market your business as a financial advisor. And because of the experience you've had with Demo and the, and the websites that you've de- designed for other financial advisors, how you can help and, and how advisors should be marketing their own businesses. Uh, and that's one of the focuses of the Empath podcast is really to spread these sorts of ideas. So tell us a little bit about how you do market your your financial advisor company yeah i mean it's sort of a long journey to get to where i'm at really um one full of cock-ups um and i think that's the only way you really learn in the longer term by trying something and getting it wrong there's a few sort of things that you have to do i think as an advisor and the first one is to understand what your business is about what you're actually providing beyond a life policy or an investment plan um, what the client's really deriving from your service and I think it's sort of building your foundation once you get to that sort of stage where you can understand what your business is and what you're offering. Then you can think about marketing it. If you just try to market it until you really know what you're delivering to the client, then you're not going to get very far. It's a bit cliche, but that's effectively your vision statement, isn't it? I am here to do, deliver this to these customers. And then you can build your messaging around that, that sort of structure. Yeah, it, it is, but um, it's, it's, it's in all marketing books. 
But I think for me personally, I found it extremely hard to get there. I would say it took at least nine years to reach the point where I really understood what I was delivering for my clients. And, and what did you do? You write that down, or was it a trial and error process to get to that point? Really, it came from um, customer surveys. Um, I've always uh, surveyed clients to find out what they think, um, both active and non-active clients. And I think over time, I started to build up a picture of exactly what it was they valued. And, and it was really just peace of mind. That's all people are really buying from me. Once you've got that that vision and that statement and that direction. Um, what have you then done to take that forward to to promote yourself to to your potential customers and indeed your existing customers? Yeah, well, I think there's a few things that advisors have to accept. I think the first one is that financial advice isn't a saturated market. Not everybody has a financial advisor. So if you're going to market yourself, don't bring yourself into the um, I'm cheaper than him sort of scenario. Um, very few advisors you speak to will ever have competed against another advisor for business. So there's there's no need to sort of draw yourself down that. It's something that a lot of people do, and it's something that I've, I did do at one point, and I definitely try to avoid it now. You've got to recognize that people don't buy financial products for logical reasons. Um, they buy everything based upon emotion. So don't waste your life trying to um, construct logical marketing propositions because they just fall on deaf ears most of the time. And brand awareness, brand identity campaigns, try those. I think they're absolutely pointless unless you target in a uh, particular niche. So for, from my perspective, your existing clients are your most valuable asset within your business. You have to build sort of a communication around your existing clients that draws other people into it, whether that be by the existing client referring you or by via social media. Blogging has always been my main source of uh, new business and new client inquiries. So I write blog posts about things that are useful to real people I know within my client bank. I post those on the blog, then I repurpose those slightly into an email newsletter, which goes to clients and prospective clients and anybody who really wants to receive it. That draws them back to the blog. That then creates comments either on social media or direct emails, and then that just sparks a conversation, and those opportunities come from the conversation. I have uh, always written on an issues basis. Um, I try not to overly... Um, geographically target because I don't mind dealing with clients via Skype and Google Hangouts and things like that. I've done it for quite some time, um, mainly because I've got a couple of employers who I run GPPs for who have employees based all over the world and uh, face-to-face meetings are not practical and uh, it's become quite a, a smooth process to deal with somebody online and somebody who's coming to your blog is already somebody who's online. They tend to be comfortable with doing things online and people, it's something I discovered a long time ago, which went when all the sales training I ever had was, when you get an, an inquiry from the internet, people on the internet are searching for instant gratification. So if you can speak to them that day via Skype, it's a lot more effective than arranging an appointment for next Thursday. Absolutely, and that's why people want you to reply to a tweet almost instantaneously or an, an email almost instantaneously, because if you leave it anything any longer than that, they'll be off somewhere else. Yep. When I uh, started, I was working for a bank and they gave me a lot of sales training. And one of the uh, most important lessons that they taught you that they thought were important was never give the customer what they want until they're about to leave. So if a customer would come in for a mortgage appointment, you would spend the best part of an hour talking to them about billings and contents insurance, mortgage payment protection, life and critical illness. And only at the end would you talk about the mortgage, the thing that they actually came in for. When I went to work for an independent financial advisor, they were buying leads off the internet and we were all trying the same approach. You know, you would try and arrange a face-to-face appointment. You would go and sit down with the client because we were bought on a geographical basis, so they were close. You would try to sell them like that and the conversion rate on them was 
absolutely terrible. This went on for quite a long time. And then I decided one day that really it was eating up far too much of my time. So I would still receive them. But instead of going to see the client and going through everything, I would have a five-minute phone call with them, do a basic fact-find and send them a mortgage quote and not mention anything else. And my conversion rates went easily triple what they were overnight. And now is that because you didn't inundate them with so much information? So the traditional model from what you're saying there is that uh, you talk about pretty much everything, life cover, critical illness, income protection, savings, investments, and then you hit them with a mortgage at the end. If that was me, my brain would be leaking out my ears by that point. No wonder the simpler approach tends to convert more. Yeah, I mean, I think it works in the banking environment because the customer's coming, they're sitting down with you, they're taking time out of their day, they've sort of arranged the appointment themselves, um, so you can go through everything, where in the bank they feel if you give them, or they did feel, I haven't been there for 10 years, so I shouldn't say they still do, <laughs> if, you, if you give them the mortgage, the information they came in for, they'll be gone, out the door, and that's the last you'll ever save them until they want to apply and then you've got to try and do everything else afterwards. But the approach I found with people that have come to you via the internet, they want an instant answer. They don't want you to come and see them in a week and then spend an hour going through it all. They're trying to gather information. They're doing it as quickly as they can. So if you, the approach that I end up taking was just give them what they want and be willing to speak to them later if they want to. So it was, here's your mortgage quote. That's what you wanted. You'll have it the same day you asked for it rather than waiting until you see me next week and then me going away and then constructing the mortgage quote for you. If you want to come back to me, come back to me. We'll do your mortgage. As we're going through the mortgage process, I'll say, and you need to think about, and then we move on to all the protection and all the other bits and pieces that go along with a mortgage naturally. And how did you come up with your fairly online business uh, model? So, so you've got a website, you've got a blog, you draw customers in using that blog. Was there a light bulb, bulb moment? Take us through the story. It, it sort of goes back to, to finding the foundation of what you want to do. I mean, the fact that I'm online came down to nothing more than cost it's a lot cheaper to market online than it is by any other medium but I read a book uh, it was a, a book that's still on my bookshelf now which is about it's a, it's a practical approach for people in sort of consultancy type roles um, advisors accountants all sort of things to build their business and fill their diaries and all the rest of it but the first half of the book is more like a course and it's all about understanding your target market understanding what you offer them and how to deliver that in an effective way it's about building a solid foundation to what you want to do and everything you think about everything you plan everything you execute whether it be a marketing effort or a customer service approach or just a business system has to be based around meeting your foundation and your objective and if it doesn't meet that then you shouldn't be doing it and what challenges did you face getting your business off the ground and how did you overcome them to make make it work yeah i mean as far as sort of the marketing of the business is concerned you can spend a lot of money very quickly and get very little for it um, so it's it's about trying to do things slowly trying to do things properly building a client bank I mean when I came from from a banking background I had no clients whatsoever and if you spoke to anybody I went to work at a more a bigger firm I had six or seven advisors at the time it was one of the bigger firms in the area and if you spoke to any of them about how they acquired their client bank it was always well you do this or you do that and the first thing you would realise was yeah that was fine 20 years ago but um, the regular wouldn't be happy if I was doing that now so you couldn't do those things so it just becomes a case of constantly being slow and building and doing little bits and pieces and bringing in people you know and working from that and then the referrals and building on with it so the, the real challenge is keeping going I think and do you find that uh, because you're effectively a one man band have you got any help in putting together these articles and uh, newsletters or is that all your own work uh, when I first started out I um, 
there was a website, I think it's called something different now, but it used to be called Rent-A-Coder. And basically it was an exchange. You know, you would say, I need a job done. This is how much I'm willing to pay for it. And pretty much any skill in the world would turn up and say, I can do it for you. Some of them would be good and some of them would be bad. And I uh, had read um, the Tim Ferriss book, The 4-Hour Workweek, about delegating everything out as yes. much as you possibly can. And I used sites like that to um, delegate as much as I could. And the one thing I found that you really can't and shouldn't delegate is your own voice. Any communication that you're making with a client, whether it be a newsletter or a blog or something along those lines, or even an email to them, it should be your voice. The second it's not, they seem to notice and switch off. I think that's very true. I was very lucky at one point when I was um, in big corporate land that I managed to find a lady in the PR team who could absolutely mimic my style of writing perfectly. You've got to be careful that you don't lose your own voice if you start to outsource these things. Yeah, I mean, I use an app on my phone at the moment, um, Google Keep, which is just a a note-taking app. And every time I have an idea for a subject line, uh, for a, a title for a blog post, I write it down. What I used to do was I would take the title and I would write a short paragraph what it was about and I'd email it off to somebody to write the article. And they would come back perfectly good articles and I would publish them. And they would give it a little bit of uh, reception but nothing particularly great. But then as soon as I wrote one myself, even though being dyslexic I was always a little paranoid about signing out written work. Um, and they would often have a lot of typos in them. I would get a much greater response to them. In the form, usually in the form of clients emailing back and asking further questions and starting conversations about things. And I've never really been able to pin, point down exactly what the difference is, but there is obviously some sort of real difference. I find a great piece of so- software, which I was, my wife first bought it for me 10 years ago. It was it's Dragon Dictation. And the, when I did have it 10 years ago, I just couldn't get it to work. It wasn't very intuitive, but I recently started using it again. And it's remarkably intuitive now. And effectively, you can just sit back in your chair close your eyes put your headphones on and start talking and when you open your eyes everything you've said is on the screen and it even has a pretty good go at putting the punctuation in as well and then all you have to do is edit it yeah i've used it before it's a a good way of getting down the conversational style i haven't used it in quite a long time but it did just take a lot of editing i think it was my uh, accent as much as anything (laughs) and Overcoming challenges, as you've done, John, makes us stronger in business. And what I always like to try and draw out from the Empath podcast is that one big idea that you would like those people who are listening to the Empath podcast today, what you would like them to take away from the experiences that you've had. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that I would say to any financial advisor who's trying to um, grow their business in any way, shape or form, it's to start an email client newsletter and actually write it yourself. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be massive. It doesn't even have to have graphics in it if you don't want to. It just has to be from you to your clients providing relevant information. And that's to your existing client bank. So what would you do? Existing client bank and anybody else who wants it. And how would you create that newsletter? Just use Word or and then email it? Or would you use a more um, structured package? Yeah, in the past I've used... Um, lots of different um, email campaign software. The advantage to using some of the software is that um, you get to know how many people are open it, what they're clicking, who's opening it, so you get some insight into what your popular articles are and you can focus a little bit more on those in the future. I've used um, SwiftPage, which is okay. Um, MailChimp, for anybody who doesn't have one, is very good. Um, It's also free. 
uh, there's a good starter package that would suit most people. Um, and the main one I use at the moment, though, is um, called Zoho Campaigns because it integrates with my back office system. And I think if you can get one that will integrate with your back office system, any other shortcomings it have will probably be uh, offset by the time it saves. And what sort of uh, click-through rates are you getting on the newsletters you send out? I, I, I use a system similar to the one you described. The one I use is called Aweber. And again, it's fascinating to, to see the number of people that click through, not only to click open the email itself, but if you include a link within the email, perhaps to a blog post or to a podcast episode such as this, it will tell you the percentage. And I actually find that the percentage click-throughs that I get are a lot higher than the sort of standard text but marketing response rates that you would expect to get from the, this sort of thing. What, what have your experiences been like? Yeah, I have my list um, divided into two, into um, contacts and uh, leads. Contacts are generally uh, people I know really well, or clients, leads are exactly what it says in the tin, people who've made inquiries in the past but haven't really done any sort of business with me. Um, the contacts, I get about a 45% click-through rate, and it's about 12.5 for leads, so there's a big difference between the two of them. Those are really impressive figures, but you also want to attract new people to sign up to your newsletter list, presumably. Do you have something on the website that allows people to sign up to that, or do you give something away for free to encourage them to sign up? Um, I've got two different um, ways of people joining the list. Um, There is a simple form to fill in when you're on my uh, blog, and there is another website, but this one hasn't been particularly successful, um, which I trialed for quite a long time. I wrote quite a comprehensive guide to ISAs, and launched a separate website called the ISA Advisor, which basically, you went straight to the website, you could sign up, and you'd get the the brochure. Well, it's probably more than the brochure, it's about 55 pages, direct to your inbox which told you anything you could possibly need to know about ISIS. I, I sort of promoted that using pay-per-click as an experiment through Google AdWords. It's It's been successful and unsuccessful. Unsuccessful in that it didn't get anywhere near the sort of sign-up numbers I was hoping for, but successful in that the people who signed up for it have high click-through rates on future mail and it has generated a little bit of business. So, so, so describe to us how you go about putting your newsletters together. Is there, a, is there a way to, you can do this quickly so that you can produce content that people want to consume? Yeah, I mean, for my own personal newsletter, I write a blog and I take three articles, not always recent ones, sometimes they're two years old, and I'll post the introduction to them plus a link to the full article in a newsletter. Top of the newsletter, I'll have a hi, blah, 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 hope you're doing all right, etc., etc. just a general greeting. Um, but recently, I did help somebody else set up a newsletter, and he didn't have time to blog or to write anything. He just wanted something to go to his existing clients. And he's an avid newsreader. You know, he reads BBC Newsfeed every day. He reads all the financial press. And all we did for him was, again, he would start off with a hi, Mr. Smith, or whatever. Um, hope you're doing all right. Comment on the weather or local, whatever few articles from the web that I thought would be interesting for you and he just lists three or four articles that he's read in the newspapers or online that he thinks are particularly interesting or might be interesting to these clients and they just link off to them and he has very good click-through rates on that and that does start conversations with him as well it takes him 10-15 minutes to do it once a week and this is all really relevant stuff and obviously your customers enjoy receiving the content that you produce for them and that ties into this whole idea um, one of the bugbears I've had about the financial services industry and again I always reinforce the fact that I've been part of the problem when 
when I was a product provider is that we haven't been particularly customer focused all of the time and one of the things I like to try and highlight on the podcast is what are we all doing to make protection and finance more accessible and indeed acceptable to consumers and, and a lot of what you're doing sounds exactly in that direction so so what, what would you say is particularly customer focused about what you're doing to draw business into your, your financial advisor company? Yeah I mean from my perspective is um, protection is quite important to me um, because my wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a couple of years ago and we got a, um, a successful payout from a critical illness plan which we didn't use in any way like how we had planned to use it if we needed to but it made everything better for us and uh, made things a lot simpler um, so protection is quite important to me so I do have a protection focus and what I try to do is not to be preachy, not to sell anything, not to push anything too hard, just to point out obvious things in hopefully an interesting, more conversational, down-the-pub sort of manner that will make people think about the issues in their own lives without trying to sell them anything. Because I think as soon as people feel you're trying to sell them anything at all, their defences go up. Uh, years ago when I first started blogging, I used to put, if you want to discuss, contact me at the bottom of my uh, blog posts, and I've removed all of that sort of stuff. I think people aren't stupid. They know that if you want to contact me, just click on the link on the right that says contact me. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it does seem a little bit contrived, doesn't it? Maybe I'll have to look at the bottom of my own blog post from that point of view. <laughs> yeah, so I think it is just try to deliver things that are useful to people. Um, don't try to sell them anything to, in, a, in a way within the financial services industry. Once you're not working for a big institution, sales skills become a different thing. Um, you don't want to sell anything to anybody that they're going to cancel. So you don't want to sell anything to anybody that they don't need because they're going to cancel it and you're going to have to pay back what you earned from it, particularly where life insurance is concerned. How often should you com communicate with clients via email or via newsletter? How, what, what's the balance between being too intrusive and not talking to them enough? Yeah, I would say erratically um, is a good idea because it, um, it feels more natural and less contrived. If you send one every Friday or you send an email on the first Friday of every month, people start to feel like, well, it's, it's automated. And of course, there's a degree of automation. I think everybody accepts that. But equally, you're only catching the people who read the emails on the first Friday of every month. So I tend to think I don't like to let it go more than three to six weeks without sending something. But what day I send it in is normally the day I've written it. I don't try to think it's best to send it at 4 p.m. on a Thursday or anything like that. It doesn't seem to affect the stats, but it does seem to affect who opens them. I think that's, that's quite interesting because some companies will advocate you have to have an editorial calendar for your business. So you'll have an email going out every Monday. You'll have a load of tweets going out at 8 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, etc., etc., etc. And, and I think you, you're right. Sometimes that does come across as being totally false whereas if it is a little bit more spontaneous and I like your word erratic that's good uh, it, it does feel a lot more personal looking at the business model that you uh, you offer and the marketing services that you offer through uh, Demo what's worked well for you John and, and maybe what's not worked so well tell us how you've modified your approach as a result of feedback as you've developed yeah i mean without taking newsletter as a side one of the most useful things i've ever done is to regularly survey clients taking client feedback is really important so i always survey my clients um i have two sort of surveys one that goes out once a year 
which allows clients to feedback totally anonymously and allows them to abuse me if they wish without me knowing it was them. <laughs> um, so you will get things in there that you wouldn't necessarily have been told. And every time, every time I complete a little bit of business for a client or an engagement of some sort, they always get a specific feedback sheet, um, which is an online survey which takes two minutes and they can fill in from their mobile phone if they, if they want to, um, which allows them to let me know how that bit of business went and so I can improve things there. So taking client feedback is the most important thing. When it comes to sort of marketing the business, always bear in mind what the clients have said, but they won't always tell you everything that you need to know. All clients will tell you that they made their decisions on why they bought something or why they took out a policy for logical reasons. I genuinely believe they never, ever do. Um, protection is always bought out of fear to some degree, and anything concerning growth or wealth is always bought out of a sense of greed. Not necessarily the evil green-eyed monster, but a desire to earn something. And protection, again, always out of fear, always out of some sort of fear. The regulator and the industry generally don't really like us to market to emotions, but from my own past experience, genuinely it is emotion-based marketing that brings results. That's a really insightful comment, and I think you're absolutely right. We are emotional animals after all, so how can we avoid using emotion in how we promote products that we want uh, people to buy and and there is a bit of a disconnect there between what the regulator might think and what the reality is yeah i mean i think protection's an ideal sort of example it's not sort of pc to sort of scare somebody into buying a protection policy and when i first joined the industry we used to have something called disturbance you know you would ask questions to disturb the client um deliberately to make them think about their scenario and i think that's still relevant today really clients don't want to think about becoming seriously ill they don't want to think about things like that but you can still sort of make them think about that without being the evil man in the corner waving a, a stick you, you can make clients think about their emotions and about the things that would affect their family i mean recently i wrote an article called um the cancer lottery which yeah, was so comparing which was comparing your chances of getting cancer to your chances of winning the lottery. It was done in a sort of a very matter-of-fact way that makes people feel it's logical because they want to sort of, people want to believe they make the decisions logically. But actually, everybody who's had a conversation with me about it, it's always about a relative who had cancer. It's a good piece of, uh, of writing that I really enjoyed. It. And again, when you see the statistic, you know, you've got a 1 in 14 million chance of winning the lottery. And the reality is that one in three people will have cancer at one point in their life. So those two stats sat side by side. You know, one of them is so likely, the other one is so unlikely, which wouldn't really take a bet on. But obviously a lot of people still buy the lottery ticket. Yeah, apparently the average person buying a lottery ticket spends about £8 a month on it as well. And that's more than the minimum premium for most life officers. (laughs) Absolutely right. What are the rewards for all this hard work, John? All this content you've produced, all these articles and all these blogs. What have been the results for you and your business? Uh, Well, it's sort of... um there's a degree of autopilot marketing. The internet, or Google more specifically, appreciates um, consistency. This is just my opinion. There's no sort of scientific evidence, but I believe that it appreciates consistency. If you're doing something regularly over a long term, they sort of give you more authority and more things pop up and you get more leads from them. I often find that the inquiries that I get relating to articles, the real substantial ones are never for articles I've recently written. They're always for articles I wrote a couple of years ago. I think that uh, the success that you've achieved is similar to quite a few of the conversations I've had on the podcast. We, We live in a world now where 
any mar- anybody who's in a marketing role or even arguably anybody who's a financial advisor has become more of an educator, has become a storyteller to a large extent. And blogs and articles and, and videos and podcasts are just a great way of getting stories across. And the more positive content that we can get out there, the more people are going to come to our websites and the more they're going to want to engage with us. I think it's a, a very interesting model that you've developed here. And I hope that the, the listeners of the, the Empath podcast appreciate what, what you've had to say today. John, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you very There's much the for, the, for the dogs barking in the background. They sound really hungry. Um, and before we finish, John, to finish the uh, Empath podcast, I always like to have a quick fire round of business questions. You okay to stay for an extra few minutes to finish that? Yeah, off? that's fine. Cool. If there was one thing that you could change about the financial services industry, perhaps by waving the proverbial magic wand, what would it be? Um, undoubtedly, it would be a long stop. Uh, I'm not sure that the whole advice sector is sustainable in the long term as long as liability continues to accumulate indefinitely. Nobody wants to escape their responsibilities as an advisor, but how can any business model really be self-sustaining when every year your liabilities increase? What's the one business model or product or campaign that's caught your attention in the last year, even if it was from a competitor? Tell us what it was that you liked about it. Yeah, I mean, financial services market in the UK, to be honest, uh, Roger, I think it's pretty poor. There's not a lot of it done, and what is done is tends to be um, from the big brands, and it tends to be brand identity stuff, which is, is fairly sort of useless to um, people like me. The one thing that did catch my attention was actually from a Canadian bank. Um, it's a campaign called TD Thanks You which is video of uh, the bank thanking its customers in highly personalised ways. Um, they never discuss their products in any way throughout the whole campaign. And it just goes to build an emotional feeling towards the bank. Um, it sounds really bad and it sounds really corny, but if you uh, Google hashtag TD thanks you, you'll find the videos on YouTube. They're actually done in a really clever, really sensitive, non-surprise, surprise type way. Tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life and or your business. CRM, Customer Relationship Management Software, discovered it many years ago and it's, it's indispensable really. And my own view is that you should use non-financial services CRM. Financial services CRM is all about compliance and getting your files right and has very little interest in communicating with your client or managing the client relationship, in my opinion. So I run two sets. I run my compliance back office and I run a CRM that allows me to actually communicate with my clients, know when I last communicated with them and manage conversations, really. And finally, what's the best business book that you've ever read? Tell us why you like it so much and what you took from it. Yeah, well, it's the one I mentioned earlier, um, which I got about building your foundation of your business. And it's uh, Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. Uh, so there's plenty of practical stuff in there, too, about things you can do to try and generate business and rules that you should impose on how you operate. And you can take some of it, you can leave some of it, but the first half of the book, which is about building your foundation and understanding what your business offers to people, is probably the most important thing I've ever read. And before we sign off, John, this is really important because I'm sure that after having listened to what you've had to say about both your financial advisor business and also the the, um, the help that you give other financial advisors through Demo, your marketing um, arm. Tell everyone how they can connect with you, whether it's on Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Plus, and and of course your website. Yeah, I mean my email address is John at BloomfieldFinancial.co.uk. But uh, if you just Google John Bloomfield Financial Advisor, you'll find me. My whole marketing strategy for years has been to make sure that that's the case. I'm on Google+, Plus, which is the only social media network where I'll have a, a proper conversation with somebody. Um, I'm on all the others as well, but they tend to be more about distributing information and responding to inquiries than actual real conversations. 
I think we should probably have you back on the podcast at a later date to talk about Google Plus, John, because it's a subject that probably demands a whole episode of a podcast on its own. Unfortunately, we haven't got time to do that today. So thank you so much for talking to me today, John. Let me finish off by wishing you every success in the future. And indeed, I hope to catch up with you again soon, possibly to talk about Google Plus. Thanks a lot, Roger. Best of luck with the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions. Okay? Okay.